0: Well, today we begin a new sermon series in the book of Acts. The book of Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. If you would, if you have a Bible with you, turn there. As you're turning to the book of Acts, let me ask you to ponder in your mind some questions or maybe answers to these questions. What's Jesus been doing all these years? What has Jesus been doing since that day that he was lifted up from heaven? What we call the ascension. What's he been doing? What's Jesus doing right now? What came to mind as you answer those questions? Maybe you thought of how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and so he's reigning. Maybe as you picture Jesus doing that, you just picture him Watching. He's watching what's going on. He's up there, he's he's watching, he's observing. He's yes, he maybe pulling some strings here or there, or leading and ruling and orchestrating in various ways. Maybe you picture Jesus enjoying praise. Whether that's the praise of heaven or even us down here praising him. Maybe you picture Jesus receiving that praise or or hearing prayers and meeting those needs. Maybe you called to mind the fact that he intercedes for us. Or that he's communing with the Father and the Spirit within the Trinity. Whatever that looks like. Maybe that's what came to your mind. And all of these things are true. And no doubt we could add some similar categories uh, that we could draw from the Bible. But I wonder if many Christians basically think of Jesus' work... And teaching as something that's done; it's in the past. It's something He did. That what we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John is what Jesus did. He healed. He cast out demons. He forgave sins. He taught. He died. He paid for sins. He said, "It's finished." He was raised the third day. Then He went up to heaven. Now He's done. Or at least he's now on to doing other things. Well, as I read the first five verses of the book of Acts, see if you can pick up on a different idea that Luke wants to get across to us. A different way of thinking about Jesus after his resurrection. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus... I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's our passage for this morning as we begin to work our way through this long and fascinating book. As we cover these first five verses and also sort of try to introduce the book of Acts or reintroduce the book of Acts to ourselves this morning, I think we can consider four things. What Jesus began to do, what Jesus said he would do, what Jesus did, and what Jesus continues to do. So first, what Jesus began to do. Did you notice that operative word? began in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do until he was taken up. That first book is the gospel according to Luke. Luke wrote both what we call Luke and the book of Acts. It's kind of a a two-volume package. It's a part one and a part two, Luke's gospel, and then the book of Acts. And he says here in Acts that in Luke, it's what Jesus began to do and to teach. All the way up until the end of Luke, where he was taken up, that's what Jesus began to do and to teach. It was just the beginning. The implication, of course, is that Acts is what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Look back to Luke 1 with me. Go back. Two books in your Bible. Go to Luke 1 to see how it begins. We'll come back to that issue of how Luke begins Acts and that operative word began, and we'll talk about its significance in just a bit. But, but let's talk about some finer details in Luke's two volumes. Look at Luke 1. This shows us that this is a two-volume set. Verse 1 Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught how did acts begin in the first book O oh, theophilus both books written by the same guy and both addressed to the same guy theophilus we don't know anything else about him except his name and what luke says about him in luke 1 and in acts 1 which isn't much but we can get a bit of a composite sketch theophilus was likely a gentile he was likely uh, a nobleman, to use a later term. Uh, he's most excellent. That's, that can be an official term. Perhaps he was a, a Roman official. He seems to have been a, a recent believer in Jesus, or perhaps still a seeker, but either way, he's maybe still got some questions he's wrestling with. He doesn't have absolute certainty about what he's been taught concerning Jesus. And so Luke researched and recorded what he did in what we call Luke so that Theophilus and others who read it might have certainty concerning the things that they've been taught about Jesus. Luke was a physician turned historian. We learn from Colossians that Luke, who was with Paul at that time, is the beloved physician. He traveled with Paul for a time. In fact, for much of the time, in Acts, there are certain accounts starting in chapter 16 where you start seeing the word we. It wasn't before, but then all of a sudden we start going someplace and we headed south and we took off and we did this and that. Luke apparently is with Paul during those times. and Along the way, as he travels with Paul, he's working on this two-volume magnum opus. He's using what others have compiled about Jesus already from their own eyewitness accounts. No doubt he has Mark, he uses Mark extensively in his gospel account. He leans on other eyewitnesses, perhaps, and he says in verse 3 of Luke 1, having investigated everything thoroughly, that's the New American Standard, a better translation than... Uh, whatever the ESV has investigated, everything thoroughly is the idea here. He's he's now putting together an orderly account or a careful account. He says. Now we talked about some of this last week as we looked to First John one, and so I won't belabor the point. But remember from last week that First John one says we heard him. We saw him, we beheld him, we touched him. God was manifest in human form and we heard and saw and touched and what we've heard and seen, we proclaim to you. Luke's methodology and argument is basically the same. He wasn't an eyewitness, but he knew those who were and he recorded what he did that they might have certainty about what Jesus did and what he taught. And that's Luke's gospel. But in Acts, he's still going on about the same thing, this eyewitness thing. He's going on about the tangibleness and the physicality of of Jesus, and specifically his resurrection. So now go back to Acts chapter 1 again, and note verse 3, he presented himself alive to those after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. There are at least 10 different appearances of the resurrected Christ recorded for us in the Bible. Most of these were with multiple people, not individuals, but multiple people. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us there was 500 who saw him at one time. In most of these appearances, weren't uh, glimpses. These were visits. These were hangouts. These were living room conversations. He ate with them. These weren't possible sightings, like perhaps people maybe saw Hitler after World War II in Argentina. Maybe, maybe not. No, I mean, they knew who this was. He, he met with them and, and hung out with them. And, and, and for those who even doubted what they saw, he invited them to touch him. He proved by many proofs that he really was dead and he really was now alive. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a resuscitated, almost dead, uh, barely alive guy who survived a crucifixion. He wasn't a figment of their imagination. He wasn't one person's hallucination. All the alternatives to a real death and a real resurrection just don't work with the accounts that we have. He proved to them that he really died, was buried, was raised, and was alive. He proved it so thoroughly, so unmistakably, that all the early disciples were willing to die for this truth. And many of them actually did die for it. They were willing to die, not just because their friend died and now was alive. That's amazing, but you might not die for that. They were willing to die because Jesus' death and his resurrection was actually for them. It it meant something cosmic. It was was earth-shattering. It was life-changing. It was destiny-altering. That's what Jesus taught when he did the Last Supper with them. He said, here, take this bread, break it. This is like my body broken for you, in your place. As Mark records, Jesus said, he, Jesus, going to the cross was a ransom for sin, a payment made for those in bondage to sin, for those particularly who were willing to admit it they had this bondage. And that's the plan. That was the plan all along. A loving, sacrificial death for sinners. A real, glorious resurrection. And that message being proclaimed throughout all the world. That's how Luke's gospel account ends, by the way. Would you turn there? Go back to Luke 24. The last place we'll go before we... Come back to Acts 1 one more final time. But notice Luke 24. We'll see here how Luke, the gospel account, and Acts hold hands. So Luke 24, look down at verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He says, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You see how Luke and Acts hold hands. There's actually overlap, not just overlap of themes. There's actually an overlap of days. Forty days are overlapped between the end of Luke and the beginning of of Acts. It's like Luke ended with a to-be-continued, like all good TV specials do from time to time, where the story is told, we can put it aside for now, but the story is still left untold. It's to be continued. Jesus said, stay here, something's coming, and he left, that's the end of Luke. You can imagine in the bottom of the screen, to be continued. And again, Acts begins by backing up, overlapping a little bit. It's it's like, again, like a, a TV show, a part two of a TV show. Acts begins by saying, previously, in the gospel according to Luke, He was with them for 40 days. He appeared to them with many proofs. He taught them about the kingdom. This is what Jesus began to do and teach. And now, tonight, part two of the much-anticipated show, Acts, a new one, new, new title perhaps. It's a story about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Now, we still haven't talked about the significance of what it means that Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. But I've belabored that point already. We'll talk about it a little bit more later. But simply note the fact that Luke's gospel is what Jesus began to do and to teach, and Acts is what Jesus continued, apparently, to do and teach. But for now, let's consider, secondly, what Jesus said he would do. Because that's part of Acts 1 as well. Go back to Acts 1 and let's consider what Jesus said he would do. You see, in verse 2, there he refers to the day when Jesus was taken up, he says, which was after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. What commands? Well, we read that in Luke 24, where there he said repentance and Faith in forgiveness should be proclaimed to all the nations. That's a command. He also gave the command for them to stay there and wait until something comes or someone comes. And then he also gave a promise related to the command. In Luke 24, it's the promise of the Father. It's also called the promise of power from on high. In typical Luke fashion, that's the end of Luke, Luke's gospel, he he reiterates that stuff again in Acts 1, here in verse 4 now, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And indeed, they had heard from Jesus more than once. Talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's in Luke 11. It's in Luke 12. It's even with John the Baptist. John the Baptist promises that the Holy Spirit would come one day. He says, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me is greater than me, and he will baptize with the Spirit and fire. And so, here we have in Acts 1. This put on the lips of Jesus in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The point is, just as John the baptizer would dunk people in water, that's what the word baptism means, to immerse, to go under, to submerge. So Jesus will do that to his disciples Not with water, but with the Spirit. He will immerse them in the Spirit. He'll dunk them with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said he would do. He would send the Holy Spirit to them. And this much anticipated, oft referred to promise would be power from on high. It would empower the, the disciples to proclaim, to witness, to call men and women to repentance in faith, and to offer the forgiveness of sins to all who would believe it, and for that to spread and spread and spread among the nations. But here in Acts 1, they have to wait. They were told to wait. He didn't tell them how long. It's not hard for us to calculate There are 50 days between Passover when Jesus died and Pentecost when the Spirit comes in Acts 2. He spent 40 days of that with these appearances, we're told. So he tells them to wait for 10 days, but he doesn't tell them how long it's going to be. He just says, something big's coming. I've given you a commission. Go and tell. You're going to have to get to the nations with this thing. Here's what you're going to tell them when you get there hold on. It's like a, a locker room scene. A, a coach has given the pep talk and the game plan, and he goes, but hold on, we're still missing something else. Sit down, stay seated, just wait. And then he goes somewhere. What now? What now? You might think that they might be starting to lose fervor and excitement. They, they might be like those athletes are really eager to get out in the field after the pep talk in the locker room but the coach said just wait it seems like a bad idea except that's how important the spirit is don't bother getting out of this room and going and telling anybody until the spirit comes that's how much you need the spirit you're going to need power from on high for this mission that's so great and so they wait Their 10-day wait will actually occupy us the next couple of Sundays. But then, three Sundays from now, Lord willing, we'll come to chapter 2. And the wait is all over. The Spirit comes. The empowerment begins. Proclamation is made. Forgiveness of sin spreads and spreads and spreads. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did what he said he would do so let's talk thirdly about what jesus did now here's why he wrote the book of acts he did it to record for us what jesus did acts is a story about the acts of the risen lord yes these are acts by the holy spirit through human agents But these are the acts of the risen Lord. Remember, Luke insists on this perspective from the very first verse. You don't need to go looking in Acts to see all the things that Jesus might be doing, might be involved in. Does it it give explicit mention that he's involved in this, that he's doing that? There's no need. Luke put it right at the beginning. The gospel accounts is what he began to do and to teach, and now... Here's an account of what he continued to do and to teach. That title, Acts, wasn't too uncommon in other ancient literature. Acts was a, a genre of literature that recorded the great events of great men or a great man. And so the book of Acts in our Bible uh, has been variously titled throughout church history, and even in manuscripts that we find. If you look in your Bible carefully, you'll see that it says the Acts of the Apostles. But you have to understand that titling of books of the Bible is sort of a quirky thing. It's a quirky thing because, well, they didn't always have titles. When Paul sat down to write the letter, what we call Ephesians, he didn't begin by Center aligning, all caps, E-P-H-E-S-I-A-N-S. All right, now I'm going to get into my letter. There's the title. He, he didn't, it's a letter. He didn't have to title it. Sometimes books of the Bible historically were referred to by their first word, not by the title that we use in our Bible today. We, we sort of obsess about the title for our Bibles in print so that we can refer to them easily. But it doesn't mean we always get it right. And so Acts of the Apostles, that didn't appear until the second century or so. Earliest manuscripts didn't have titles for Acts. Uh, Some just had Acts. And then about the second century, we start seeing Acts of the Apostles. But ever since then, it's kind of been debated. Some have said, it really isn't. It's that much about the apostles. It's not just the apostles doing these things. When it is the apostles doing these things, it's basically only two, Peter and Paul. Some today would even suggest a a different title like Acts of the Holy Spirit. And that's getting closer to the truth, I think. That rightly captures the Spirit's foundation of the book and his involvement in the mission all throughout. But it is the Spirit that Jesus sent. He sent the Spirit. It is His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Paul seems to have gotten this very point that Jesus continued to do and to teach well beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul says that what he spoke, what he preached, is what Christ works through him in word and in deed by the power of the Spirit. It sounds like Luke and Paul hung out some time ago, right? Maybe they had compared notes on the theology of this and even the language of it. Of course, we don't want to cut out the Spirit either from the book of Acts or from church history or present-day experience, not in the least. The Spirit is the promise of the Father. It's power from on high. But again, it is the Spirit of Christ. Christ sends the Spirit. And that Spirit empowers men and women in the book of Acts in order to make Christ known. And that's what we find throughout the book of Acts. We find sermons... About 20 of them. And these sermons have Jesus Christ as their their focal point. Luke recorded in Luke 24, didn't he? That Christ had to suffer and rise and that this with repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed to all nations. In the book of Acts, We find that message. We also find those who are suffering for that message. In other words, suffering for Christ. It's in the book of Acts that we first read that these people are Christians, Christians his messengers they're witnesses to him about him it's all about jesus that's the point jesus is not only the content of the message or the reason for suffering but jesus is clearly at the controls jesus in the book of acts is building his church just like he said he would I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Acts is the story of Jesus beginning to do that. Jesus did what he said he would do. He would spread word of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins by the power of his spirit through human witnesses to all the earth. Isn't it great to know that the book of Acts is a story of what Jesus did? It's not a story of great men with great faith, with great preaching skills, and great boldness, and great courage to face persecution and pain and trial. That's involved. That's part of the mix. But it is a story about what Jesus did, what he did. And it's a story about what Jesus did. Past tense. He did it. He was successful. What he said he would do, he did. What he promised, he gave. What he foretold, he fulfilled. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that was only the beginning. Acts records the next chapter, and it is a chapter that is sweeping and swelling, and it is successful. Despite... Fierce opposition. Great persecution. Acts is a, in some ways a compendium of suffering stories for the gospel. But Luke tells us, because Jesus made it happen this way, that right along all the persecution and suffering, all the opposition and threats and warnings, the gospel is going forth the persecution is inevitable and the persecution is futile this gospel is spreading there's this repeated language in the book of acts you might want to just circle these if you've got your bible open still go to acts 6 acts 6 verse 7 this is almost like a repeated chorus Acts 6-7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. The word increased. It spread. The people multiplied. Look at chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied Chapter 19, verse 20. Chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And if we were to go into each of these contexts, these verses I pointed out, before this, there's preaching, there's some form of persecution, and then there is some mention of success. With this summary statement at the end, the word was increasing and multiplying. And so were the people. And the word was increasing and prevailing mightily. And it's similarly put even at the end of the book. Go there, the very last, bo- uh, last verse in this book. Here the apostle Paul is imprisoned for the gospel. That's going to be the end of the story. Paul in prison. And yet, verse 31 of chapter 28, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The very last words of the book of Acts, literally in the Greek, it's the very last word, singular. Unhindered. Don't you love it? The book of Acts ends With this ringing in our ears and hopefully in our memory, unhindered. The word was unhindered. Paul was in prison, but the word was unhindered. It makes me think of how he put it in 2 Timothy when he was in prison another time. There he said, I'm in chains, but the word is not chained. It's loose. It reminds me of Philippians which Paul wrote from the same Roman imprisonment we find him in, in the book of Acts. In Philippians, Paul says that his imprisonment had actually advanced the cause of the gospel. One, because it made Christians outside of prison more bold for the faith. And number two, because, well, he had a new group of people to preach to called the Roman guard. And many of them had come to believe. He even ends the book of Philippians with a a wink in a Cheshire grin as he says, All the brothers greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Isn't that great? Acts is a story of the word of God continuing and increasing and multiplying in an unhindered way despite threat. Warnings, persecution, and imprisonments, despite shipwrecks, and stoning, and martyrdom, and death. In the gospel accounts, this Jesus thing started with a, a dozen guys. There were a lot of people who came to hear Jesus speak, but mostly they were curious, or they were interested in the miracle, or... Or they wanted to learn more, but they weren't actually workers of Jesus on mission with him. At at the high point, we saw it at our Lord's Supper service just a few days ago in Luke 10, 72 were sent out on a sort of proto-mission, a practice mission. 72, that's as good as it got before Jesus' death and resurrection. Even after the death and resurrection, despite appearing to 500 at one time, what do you have Waiting for the Holy Spirit to come in Jerusalem. We'll see it next week. 120. That's how big it gets before the Spirit comes. And then the Spirit comes. And the first sermon is preached. And on that day, 3,000 followed Jesus. Shortly after, it was 5,000 were following Jesus. And that's the multiplication that's happening in one city. Then it begins to spread out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Cappadocia in Derby in Lystra in Iconium to Antioch in Ephesus in Troas up to Bithynia in the north and down to Alexandria in Egypt in the south and, and then over to Macedonia and eventually to Rome where Paul longed to preach the gospel that was his goal his ministry goal was get the gospel to Rome i got to get the gospel to Rome and the lord not only got him there with the gospel but gave him audience after audience through courtrooms through trials Acts ends with Paul in prison. That seems weird to us, but it ends with Paul in a Roman prison and that was what Paul wanted to happen. The gospel's unhindered. The ending of Acts is peculiar to many. It's curious because it's a story that's well left untold. We might wonder what what comes after this? What happens to Paul? What's going to happen? He's in prison. He might die. Luke just says the end. Or does he say to be continued? Not so much that uh, he planned to do an Acts, Volume 2, or, you know, Luke's magnum opus volume three or something like that but you get the feeling that acts as well could have ended with an unspoken to be continued because the spread of the name and the fame of christ in the world is to be continued it did continue in acts it continued beyond acts as well and it continues today you got to love the name of Acts 29, the church planting network, right? That's what's happening. It's the next chapter. It just keeps going. It continues today. And so lastly, let's consider what Jesus continues to do. The fact that we're here this morning, in the year 2016, the year of our Lord, here in Albuquerque, New Mexico is proof that what jesus said he would do he has done and he continues to do in this little old well middle-sized city of albuquerque today there are countless churches preaching the gospel not all quite as clearly but all generally pretty clearly there are so many There are tens of thousands, maybe close to 100,000 professing Christians in this mid-sized city today on the other part of the globe who are raising their voices in praise to the risen Christ, confessing his name, hearing God's word taught in order to be equipped to be re-sent out again for another week On mission. None of us are apostles. Apostles were unique. In that they were the ones who actually saw the risen Lord in the flesh. They were witnesses to that. And they were witnesses then in a special way that we're not today. But even in Acts, it's very clear that the witness wasn't just those who saw Jesus. The witnessing work was at first done by those who literally and physically saw the risen body of Jesus. But as other people were told that and believed that for themselves, what they did next was witness. They told and they told and they told and they told. And so every generation of Christians in any place of this world can and and should be able to say with those first Christians, We can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. I haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but I've heard some amazing stuff from this book. I've heard and seen some amazing things from people who've come to believe and be changed by him. None of us have the same amazing conversion story that the apostle Paul had. Remember, he was confronted by the risen Lord on the road to Damascus as he was riding there to persecute Christians, as he'd done in other places before. And then he was forever changed. He not only believed, but he was a messenger, a unique and special messenger used by the Lord to suffer greatly and for the gospel to spread through his words greatly. He didn't tire of telling the story of his conversion. I think you can find it three or four times in the book of Acts. He told the story of the Damascus Road. We don't have that story, but every Christian has a story. Every Christian has met the same risen Christ. Not in the same way, not in the same place, under the same circumstances. But every Christian was once a sinner who got a glimpse of the risen Christ and was forever changed by it. Every Christian has come to believe the same thing that the Apostle Paul came to believe. That I know whom I have believed in. And I believe that what I've committed to him, he's able to keep until the final day. We've all come to believe the same stuff about the same guy. We've all been given the same mission to go and represent him in this world and to spread it to others. We've all been given the same promise of power from on high with the Holy Spirit. What Jesus said he would do, he did. And he continues to do today. The story is to be continued. So much has happened. Jesus has had incredible success at the spread of his name for the forgiveness of sins in this world. But it is not done. It is to be continued. And so Jesus, right now, He's not only on his throne reigning, he's not only receiving praise and answering prayer and working for us and caring for us, watching over us, not only communing with the Father and the Spirit, but he is actively building his church, adding to it, strengthening it, doing deeds through people and speaking through them in even mediocre sermons like this one so are you in? Are you in? Have you come to him? Have you been confronted by the risen Christ? He is risen. They saw him. They wrote it down carefully. Those who passed this message along, carefully investigated. They weren't looking for spectacular they were looking for truth they were looking for those who really saw it and those who were honest about it they wrote it down and in god's providence and goodness it's been preserved we have it in the bible today and you can trust in it you can have certainty maybe not utter certainty that that's not what god asks you to have but conviction belief assurance have you are you in, I wonder, have you trusted in the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus? And if so, have you told that to him? That's a great place to start. you, you got to turn a corner and you've got to talk to God about this. And so in Romans 10, it's called confession, not so much confession of specific sins, but confessing him, call out to him. Verbalize it in prayer today. It could be as simple as what one man said. He beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you know that that mercy comes on account of Jesus, then you put that in there too. Be merciful to me on account of what Jesus did for me. Give me that forgiveness that your word talks about. I receive it today. I believe it to be true. If you believe that today, then... You're to follow Jesus. You're to do what he does. You're to join him in his grand plan. Christian, are you in? I know you're in with Jesus. Are you in on his mission? Are you in on his plan? Have you forgotten that it involves you? Have you forgotten that it's going to be hard? Have you forgotten the power of the Spirit? Well, let the book of Acts light a fire underneath you. Let the book of Acts put some steel in your weak bones. You feel inadequate? You are. And that's why he's given you his Spirit. So lean on the Spirit and pray that the Spirit would give you boldness. Don't you think for a minute that power from on high isn't enough for you to tell people about Jesus? Have you forgotten what to tell people? You tell them about Jesus, that's it. You don't talk about God generally that gets people nowhere towards heaven. You don't talk about spiritual things you don't boldly mention that sometimes you pray. That doesn't move anyone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. you got to get specific about the man, Jesus, who died and was raised and who offers forgiveness on account of his death and resurrection. We can sum it up like this. Jesus has a mission, and the mission is a message a message about a man, and he plans on using messengers. But Jesus is the message. His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So don't make up another message or soft-pedal the message. Jesus is the message. Remember that it's his mission. It's not your mission. It isn't about you. It isn't about a denomination. It's his mission. Remember, he will accomplish it. What he said, he did, and is doing, and will do it. Threats and and even pain and death will come. It'll look like sometimes the church is retreating and moving backwards or, or losing the fight. But the threats and the pains and even the deaths cannot hinder his cause. Unhindered is the final word of the book of Acts, and it remains today. And he must do it. It's not just that he will do it. we got to recognize from the book of Acts that he must do it. That the kind of stuff that we're after, the kind of stuff we're attempting and we're praying for is not stuff we can accomplish in our own strength or with our own strategies. We can craft beautiful worship services. We could, we could spend four times more time on sermons than we do creating them anyway not don't worry not preaching them but i mean you can just hit one out of the park and what happened there on a human level some guy got up and talked about some religious things and some people listened some didn't and some went away maybe a little different but it, it, nothing eternal happens unless the spirit's involved he must do it we got to feel that We have to feel that in our witnessing. We have to feel that in our parenting. If he doesn't save them, they're not saved. And we must remember that though he must do it, he will do it. Not with every kid, but generally so. He will do it. And it's all about him. Let us respond to this risen Christ, this powerful, spreading, famous, risen Christ in all of his acts of old and today. Let's respond to him in great praise. Let's join him in promoting him in this world to spread and amplify that praise. Well, to be continued... Our series in Acts is to be continued. The story is to be continued. The mission is to be continued. And his praise is to be continued. And it forever will continue. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you are the exalted one. And with all authority in heaven and in earth, you send us into this world to make disciples. Give us courage and joy about the message, about the mission, and let us be confident, Lord, in your power to bring it to pass. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you By your spirit and through messengers have brought the gospel to this land. And in this city today, there are hundreds of churches who believe this. And there are thousands and thousands of of Christians in this one city who give you praise and confess your name today. We thank you for it. We don't take it for granted. We pray for more of it, though. We pray it would spread in this city and even further in the world Bless our efforts, Lord. Bring fruit, we pray. For your glory, we want it. We want to see men and women come to believe. And so let that start, Lord, with passionate praise. And from there, let it permeate our lives and let it transform our tongue so that we truly cannot help but speak or to sing the things which we have heard and seen. It's in your name that we pray this. Amen.